This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has tons of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The New Spirit of Capitalism by Luke Boltanski and Eve Cipello, a new edition translated by Gregory Elliott. In this major work, sociologists Luke Boltanski and Eve Cipello go to the heart of the changes in contemporary capitalism. Via an unprecedented analysis of the latest management texts that have formed the thinking of employers in their reorganization of business, the authors trace the contours of a new spirit of capitalism. They argue that from the middle of the 1970s onwards, capitalism abandoned the hierarchical Fordist work structure and developed a new network-based form of organization that was founded on employee initiative and autonomy in the workplace, a freedom that came at the cost of material and psychological security. The authors connect this new spirit with the children of the libertarian and romantic currents of the late 1960s, as epitomized by dressed-down cool capitalists like Bill Gates and Ben and Jerry, arguing that they practice a more successful and subtle form of exploitation. Now a classic work charting the sociological structure of neoliberalism, Boltanski and Cipello show how the new spirit triumphed thanks to a remarkable recuperation of the left's critique of the alienation of everyday life that simultaneously undermined their social critique. In this new edition, the two authors reflect on the reception of the book and the debates that it has stimulated. The New Spirit of Capitalism by Luke Boltanski and Eve Cipello. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What if the Cold War only just ended sometime around November 2016, as Donald Trump grotesquely encircled and then captured the presidency, finding it, to his surprise, unguarded? The Cold War proper, of course, ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But Aziz Rana, making his second appearance on the show, argues that the Cold War was a lot more than the conflict with the evil empire. It was also, he writes in the latest issue of N Plus One, a domestic order that, quote, concerned everything from the genius of America's domestic institutions to the indispensability of its global role. These judgments gave coherence to the country's national identity, allowing both Barack Obama and Bill Kristol to wax poetic about America's special destiny as a global hegemon and legitimacy to its economic policy. But with the 2016 election, the Cold War paradigm finally shattered. This interview should be considered a sequel of sorts to the one that I did with Aziz last October, which focused more on earlier periods of American history. And this episode is a long one. You might want to take it in in a few installments. That's why I'm not posting short Friday digs or diglets before or after this one. I want to be mindful of your podcast diet. Before we get rolling, thank you to those who are already supporting us on patreon.com slash the dig. 
we put tons of work into this thing, tons, and your support is what makes it possible. We don't paywall any of our shows. So if you are a regular listener and haven't yet donated what you can, please do so at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you, and here's Aziz Rana, a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom, a book that changed everything about how I think about the world. He's currently at work on a book on the 20th century politics of constitutional veneration and how such support has shaped the terms of domestic and foreign affairs. Aziz Rana, welcome back to The Dig. It's my pleasure to, to be back. You write that the 2016 election was the last election of the Cold War, but of course the Soviet Union collapsed nearly three decades ago. Explain what you mean. The thought is that we generally think of the collapse of the Soviet Union as ending the Cold War. And obviously, in a real sense, it ended the direct confrontation um, with the Soviet Union. But what I mean is that in many ways, the belief that the U.S. won the Cold War actually hardened a set of judgments, a kind of consensus in Washington about the unique justness of American institutions, the the beauty of free market um, capitalism, um, the fact that the U.S.'s constitutional system was slowly bending toward justice with greater inclusion for historically excluded communities, and that the U.S. was an exceptional city on the hill um, who promoted the interests of the world in its own foreign policy, that American interests were coterminous with the world's interests. And these are views that had been deeply contested for various periods um, in American history, and of course, especially in the 1960s and 1970s. And there's a way in which uh, winning the Cold War put them beyond reproach. Um, and so you saw in the 1990s and 2000s um, a persistent like return to these as assumptions that central politicians in both parties just took for granted. And when I say that like the 2016 campaign was the last election of the Cold War, it's really the election where on both right and left with you know, a socialist Bernie Sanders confronting in various ways um, an ethno-nationalist pro-Russia Trump, um, that the terms that had really marked the previous decades um, started to fray in a really significant way. After the fall of the, the Soviet Union, there's this confirmation and validation, even though it's the end of the Cold War proper, this the, the, the U.S.'s victory over the Soviet Union uh, is serves as this confirmation and validation of the U.S.-led anti-communist Cold War order. Does that go some ways in explaining this triumphalist neoliberal politics of the 90s? I, I think absolutely. I, I mean, so I was a college student in the late 1990s, and it was just striking to me the difficulty then of making arguments that you just associated with the left. In other words, referring to the U.S. as a as an empire, um, criticizing capitalism, uh, defending the government's capacity 
um, to positively intervene on behalf of um, people's lives. And these were views that were, again, shared by mainstream politicians in both parties. I mean, um, there's a reason why uh, Clinton and those around Bill Clinton, you know, were very consciously talking about like a third way and even um, positively used the descriptor of, of neoliberal. Um, and it's absolutely tied to the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was a specter um, that haunted any kind of assertion of left politics. And to assert left politics was either to be somebody that was like dangerous and opening up the pathway to totalitarianism or just like naively hopeless in, in believing that, um, that popular power could actually intervene in ways that were um, productive and not necessarily uh, oppressive. And um, it produced a lot of common ground. Um, it produced common ground in both parties around um, the value of aggressive American interventionism. Um, the collapse of the Soviet Union meant that, you know, there was what amounted to a kind of amnesia regarding what the U.S. had actually done during the Cold War. In other words, just the sheer amount of violence, chaos, and death that had been wrought by policies in not just in Vietnam, but in Indonesia, and, um, um, South America. Iran. And that in a way, like those policies were just simply justified by the fact that the U.S. had quote unquote won. Um, and it also hardened a kind of faith in the the market. Um, so the 90s is a period of like intense foreign policy experimentation with privatization um, abroad. But it's also a time where you have a whole host of market solutions to basic social problems that you can provide public goods like you know, education through uh, market approaches. And it's an era where, because of the increased diversification of elite institutions, there's a real belief that, well, the problem of race in particular is one that's a problem of the past. Like the idea of a post-racial society really starts to emerge during this period. And, you know, it's all being underscored by um, the sense that like the Cold War's afterlife is a kind of Cold War victory that validates the beliefs during that period. The collapse of the Soviet Union turbocharged neoliberalism in the 90s. But I wonder if it also meant that the American project really no longer ha had to affirmatively distinguish or justify itself and that this created some some problems in the sense that, um, and Corey Robin uh, has written about this in his analysis of neoconservatism, that once the communist threat was eliminated, the Soviet threat, the U.S. no longer had this thing against uh, uh, this thing that it contrasted itself against and that for them, victory and sole superpower status deprived America of its deeper purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. I mean, we tend to think of the Francis Fukuyama um, statement about the end of um, end of history um, as valedictory. But for Fukuyama and for many of the early neoconservatives, it's really not meant to be valedictory because there's a real sense that what happens to the country when it no longer has a real external enemy? What kind of purpose can actually produce a set of like unifying commitments and, and give meaning um, to the activities of, of politicians and citizens? Um, and that's like a real issue that marks the 90s. Um, it marks the 90s among neoconservatives because of their worry that the U.S. is just going to become a kind of complacent, um, commercialized society. Notice, by the way, these are the same kind of worries 
um, that imperialists had at the end of the the 19th, early 20th century. These are precisely the arguments that Teddy Roosevelt was making about the need about for getting a decadent, decadent push. and soft. Absolutely. So the 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 return of the idea about decadence um, is a long-standing sort of a neoconservative conservative trope, and it comes back uh, with a vengeance in the 90s. So it's, a clo- it's actually, like another closing of the frontier, is what you're saying. Absolutely. That the end of the Cold War produces many of the same conversations about. Um, the decline of social cohesion, and here really it's um, agreement among elites about how to pursue policy, uh, whether or not there's something like a common good that marks public life, and like what purpose can justify American power. I mean, these are the same conversations that have taken place previously. And you see them absolutely on the center left. So, you know, we forget that um, one of the sort of most important public policy books of the early and mid-90s was a book called The End of Equality by Mickey Kaus, uh, making the argument that, you know, rather than kind of money liberalism that had marked New Deal politics, that um, the Democratic Party had to move um, toward a defense of what he called social equality. And really what he meant was that there's the need for a new kind of, quote unquote, civic Republican ethos that would bring people together, given that there was now no clear enemy. Um, And that undergirded, for example, all the conversations that Clinton emphasized during that period about um, Teach for America and AmeriCorps and creating a kind of common good um, in the wake of what was viewed as a sort of dissipating public life. It wasn't just neoconservatives in the the, the sense that there there was, uh, thinking back to my time as a teenager in the late 90s, a kind of there was this triumphalism and there is no alternative moment, but there was also a, a, a deep malaise or a doubt or uncertainty that seemed to underpin it, at least on the the radical left, which I was getting involved in in that period, thinking about what the, the emphases were. It was on, you know, ad, you know, the magazine ad busters and this critique of of commercial culture and 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 advertising and shopping and that sort of uh, having this corrosive this corrosive influence on the country that in a, in a weird way, in a funhouse mirror kind of way, parallels the, the uncertainty on the on the neocon right. The best articulations of this that we can see as a kind of incipient left politics mm-hmm. um, came from Jed Purdy in his book, For Common Things. And Purdy actually has a great essay on thinking about this era called the accidental neoliberal. And, you know, Purdy in, in the book... Um, critiques irony, like presents an argument against irony and in defense of seriousness. And I think in the 90s, at a moment really when it felt like you couldn't actually just talk about class conflict and the need for socialism and the problems of capitalism and empire, because all of that seems so passe, like anything with a whiff of Marx felt like you were, um, you were breaking um, an object in a museum out of its case. Like it felt like dusty and old and kind of like reprehensible in some way. So you couldn't actually just have that conversation. Or like reanimating Lenin's uh, yeah. stuffed corpse. So, <laughs> so the way that the left dissatisfaction that you are articulating about commercialization and all of this stuff played out was it was the acceptable language to talk about what seemed to be missing from American life. Um And in a sense, like this is, I think, the deep point about Purdy's defense of seriousness, like what Purdy was talking about was like what was missing was politics. Like there was a way in which the presumption was um, Cold War victory 
uh, underscored the truth of Cold War ideology, and it made politics passe. Like all you really needed was a kind of post-political managerialism around the edges. Um, and it's something that a lot of people rebelled against. And I think the language of that time, of the late 90s and early 2000s, um, was the language that, well, the two parties are the same. Like, obviously, in a deep sense, the Democratic and the Republican parties were not the same. Tweedledee and Tweedledum uh, yeah. of the 2008 campaign. Exactly. But what the Nader campaign was articulating was a common sense that um, the idea of authentic alternatives that highlighted the fact that there are profound, irreconcilable conflicts between social groups and society, between those oppressed and those oppressive, between the haves and the have-nots, between business and labor, between um, you know, um, communities that were racially subordinated and those that engaged in subordination, like all of that had basically been wiped off the board and replaced with a really antiseptic conversation about how to use the market to implement social policy um, and the ways in which uh, people could, you know, to use um, um, the language of the later Obama years, could be could disagree without being disagreeable. Before we get further into this period following the Soviet collapse. I want to talk to you, go back in time, and talk to you about the domestic politics during the Cold War proper. And I think, to the extent that people do think about this, um, in terms of how the Cold War affected U.S. domestic politics, I think people think about it in terms of McCarthyism and repression of left dissent and the kind of narrowing of American politics. And I think that's all right, but that there's this much bigger picture here um, that that you write about and that others have written about, which is that World War II and then the Cold War prompted the U.S. to develop this new account of what it was. And this new account dispensed with or occluded a bunch of a bunch of other things that had been true about the U.S. for a long time, whether in terms of class conflict, whether in terms of the U.S. as a, a, a white nation. And instead, we get this idea um, that we are a nation founded on ideas, ordained to to guide the world toward our foundational commandments of self government, equality, and liberty. Can can you talk a little bit about what the onset of the Cold War did to domestic American politics, and 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 how it differed from what had prevailed prior to that onset? The domestic story about race and class are like are deeply interconnected, but just um, for the purpose of clarity, I think it might be useful to, to just keep them separate and tell two parallel stories. So one, I think, is really a story about race. Um, one of the things that the onset of the Cold War um, coincided with was global decolonization. So the period after World War II is a period of intense political assertiveness by non-white communities, both um, in, I mean, in Latin America and Asia and Africa. So across what we generally term the global South. Um, and that actually raised some really profound questions about the nature of American power. I mean, the U.S., and this is stuff that we discussed previously and is the basis for my own work on uh, American political and legal development, um, had long been organized on principles of what we might think of as um, um, settler um, colonization, what I call settler empire. In other words, that the U.S. was built on expansion through expropriated native land 
and economic growth through enslaved and then coerced African um, work. And that all of this was done on racially uh, restrictive terms, restrictive terms that uh, on the one hand created a set of rights that were available to those that were included as settler insiders, Europeans, um, while excluding and subordinating a variety of different groups that were on the outside. And the idea that the U.S. was really, let's say, more akin to like South Africa or um, to Australia um, than it was to like a country in the global south it would have just been presumptively assumed. But now, in an era of decolonization, American leaders had to really start thinking about like how is it that American power can be justified, and how can you convince, quote unquote, or win over hearts and minds in the global south under these new terms. And part of it was to redescribe American founding and the American project as looking a lot more like these decolonizing societies than what it in fact was, a uh, settler colonial enterprise. And so to redescribe American founding as the first country that fought off um, an imperial oppressor, to tell the story of the U.S. and its birth as kind of akin to India's independence from, from Britain. Um, Which ironically we, is a story so, that Ho Chi Minh originally finds quite compelling. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's so it should be noted that this articulation in the context of global decolonization is one that actually does strike a chord with different kinds of elites in the global south. And it also means then that the U.S. has to look at its own internal practices um, if the Soviet Union, for example, is making a strong claim to racial equality, like what does that mean for the U.S. in a setting in which um, racial discrimination is rampant throughout the country and like a large part of the country is organized explicitly on white supremacy, white oligarchy? Um, and so that presses for internal domestic changes that are understood as foreign policy imperatives. So, for example, the State Department submits an amicus brief in Brown versus Board of Education saying it's really important that Plessy versus Ferguson and separate but equal is overturned because of like the, the, the central role that, um, that Jim Crow plays in undermining American foreign policy uh, goals. So there's a story about race that gets tied up with the Cold War where you know, over time, what Americans come to articulate is a claim, this is American foreign policy elites and political elites, that the U.S. was the first um, truly anti-imperial society. It's been freed equal from the founding. What it promotes abroad is a kind of um, exceptional project of liberty. All of those elements that you described and what that means domestically is steady amelioration on issues of race and the steady inclusion of previously excluded communities into what is an essentially just society. Um, but not, this is the key point, like not an actual investigation of the ways in which the country at its roots built on uh, modes of racial subordination. There are these practical demands of the Cold War, like where Jim Crow, as far as the State Department cons is concerned, is feeding into Soviet propaganda. But then the, that's not how it's expressed to the to the American people and in terms of how American popular ideology has transformed, the notion becomes that civil rights victories are the fruit of America's promise, original promise ultimately being f fulfilled. And and there's this related thing that's happening at the same time that's less well known than the civil rights movement, but the, the birth of this notion that we're a nation of 
of immigrants, and it's in 1965 that the racist immigration quotas that were enacted in the 20s are repealed, which is part of the civil rights story that 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 a lot not as many people remember. Yeah, and this is really important. So um, the idea of the country as a nation of immigrants, and that term in particular, as you note, is a product of the 60s and is most closely associated with John F. Kennedy. When the term immigrant first starts appearing in the late 19th century, believe it or not, it's actually a term of um, restrictionism. In other words, the, the previous term had been emigrant or um, you know, perhaps foreigner or migrant. Um, but emigrant in particular just meant, meant somebody that's moving from one place to another. And the beginning use of the word immigrant was a way of distinguishing between people that are just in transit and folks that are coming from abroad. And as a way of saying that people that are not native born in the U.S. are a particular kind of threat. And so you have um, immigration restrictionists that construct and start using that term. Over time, it becomes reclaimed um, as a positive language. And this idea of the country as a nation of immigrants really picks up in the context of sort of the, the Cold War universalist language about the national project. Um, and in many ways, what it's doing is like with so much of American um, political ideology, that on the one hand, it's articulating something that we can really think of as emancipatory. So when Kennedy is talking about the country as a nation of immigrants, and when that becomes a common language in the context of the 65 law, that's a way of saying that the country is universal. Everybody should be included, even on these fairly limited liberal terms. But at the same time, what it's also doing is, again, really consciously reconstructing the meaning of the American past. Um, by this, I, I mean kind of two things. One, the heyday, according to this argument of when the U.S. was a nation of immigrants, the late 19th century, really wasn't like the heyday of open immigration. It was the heyday of a particular kind of settlement where um, settler insiders saw that in order to be able to um, expand across the entire continent, you'd need more people than just the original migrants from Europe, from England, excuse me. And so they created relatively porous policies, but only for European migrants who could be incorporated as settler co-equals. And who weren't um, even really could, conceived of as migrants, more conceived of no, as, settle, not, as settlers as part were, of the shared settlement project. Exactly. They were conceived in advance as settlers that had greater rights um, than people with long histories on the land. So that even before they became formal citizens in the majority of states and territories in the late 19th century, European, um, quote unquote, like, you know, migrants or immigrants from the ball, from abroad, but non-citizens had voting rights, access to land grants. Um, while this is a period of intense control over the movement of non-Europeans, um, so Native peoples, um, African-Americans, uh, Mexican-Americans. Um, so, you know, it's remembering as an era of an open door that's inclusive, a period that's actually very different. And then redescribing founders as immigrants, which is another really key thing. So this whole <laughs> and it's remarkable is when you think yeah, about it. It's this whole period is consistent with um, a kind of valorization of Puritans, but in terms that are quite different than what you'd have seen in earlier parts of American history. So like in the late 19th 
early 20th century when Puritans were being valorized, like it was either to really emphasize like the Europeanness, their like whiteness, or to, um, you know, uh, embrace the project of settlement of European control over non-European land and to articulate continuities with white South Africa and white Australia. But now in this post-World War II moment, like the Puritan is really emphasized as a kind of refugee, as somebody that was religiously persecuted in their home country and so flees oppression, comes to the U.S. because the U.S. is a specific kind of, you know, um, even then like imagined um, place of opportunity. And so like sets the mold by which later generations are able to join in with this nation of immigration. Um, and so the, the story of the nation of immigrants, which is a Cold War story about how to universalize the American project both domestically and abroad, is very consciously also a way of just simply rearticulating the meaning of the country's past so that the national self-conception shifts in ways that end up undergirding the ideological commitments of what's emerging as the American century. The Cold War facilitates these domestic civil rights and economic gains during the period, but also severely limits them. In the case of, of race, because the achievement of racial equality is presented as a matter of simply completing the project of liberal integration. And this takes systematic transformation off the table, whether in terms of race or class, because by definition, America is already really great, just incompletely so. Um, so if you could, you've talked a little bit about how this operated in terms of, 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 of race and immigration. If you could talk about that in terms of, of, of economics, both in terms of what they facilitated and what, how, and what, and, and in what sense it constrained, um, possibilities for, for change. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that it's really important to remember is that, the, the Gilded Age in the period from the 1890s through the 1930s, more broadly, is a period of really intense um, and essentially open class warfare, where um, class accounts of American society just proliferate across, um, across social and political life. Uh, and that they, they're kind of like the bread and butter of insurgent labor politics. Um, they're central... Um, to even academic understandings of American history. So this is a time in which Charles Beard's account of both the Constitution and of American political development is in many ways like a dominant account during the era. The view of the Constitution itself is as a counter-revolutionary document that undermined the class revolutionary elements of, of the 1776 moment and that was sort of structured... Um, to create veto points that limit the ability of poor and ordinary citizens to actually use sheer numbers, like mass vote to influence policy. And what this did is it really heightened class in particular as a central site of solidarity and organization, where the notion that the U.S. isn't you know, a single unified we the people, but it's a country marked by divisions between the few and the many that's fought out on the battlefield of the economy was a really common one. Um, and it actually produced during the New Deal in the context of the Great Depression, you know, perhaps the greatest victory 
um, for the labor movement, uh, certainly in the 20th century. And that's the fact that you had enough organized labor support within institutions like the CIO that, that they were able to actually partially, not wholly, um, partially for a very limited time, take control over key decision-making elements of the Democratic Party and impose um, a limited set of social welfareist policies. Um, and also to, to press for labor protections like collective bargaining and various kinds of defenses of, um, of um, things like the right to strike. Now, what happens in the Cold War, in the early Cold War, starting sort of centrally with um, Taft-Hartley in 1947, a key uh, bit of labor legislation, but even before then, and um, through the 50s and, and 60s, is that there's a basic compromise that's reached between government, business, and labor over the terms of what had been open conflict. And the compromise is this, that business maintains control over the prerogatives of economic decision-making at the point of production. So like business has all of the managerial control, like where to put a factory, what kinds of products to produce, et cetera. And labor instead moves from being a kind of general instrument of mass democracy or social transformation that sees the union as uh, on a smaller scale an embodiment of the kind of democratic principles that are supposed to mark the society as a whole into a special interest group that bargains over wages and benefits. And then secondly, that to the extent that the country has an expansive social safety net, the vast majority of what counts as this safety net is stuff that's provided through work, through employment. You can think of everything from social security to like healthcare benefits, that it's privatized through work within the context of the job. Which in a social, stuff that in a social democracy would just be provided as a matter of course by the state. Yeah. As a function, uh, as a universal and guaranteed right, that's just a function of being um, like a living, breathing person in that society. <laughs> um, and what that does is a few things. Like over time, it steadily defangs the labor movement of its own power to critique business in the state. Um, it does this because, you know, labor actually like conscious labor leaders, many labor leaders consciously accept this bargain. They see it as you know, the price of victory. So for Walter Ruther, it means like, okay, you don't get in the business of critiquing the imperialist foreign policy of the US government, what it might be doing in the context of the Cold War, you know, um, um, assassinating foreign leaders, engaging in Vietnam. So you're no longer in that business, you just focus on like the benefits that you get. Um, and that allows um, the state to pursue various kinds of violent and pro-business policies that in the long term eat away uh, at the general power of labor. I should add that it kind of makes sense why the, this is done in the 50s. Like the 50s is a really high tide for, for labor. I mean, it's a period, um, Jefferson Cowie notes this in some of his work, where um, people that were in unions at that time often refer to it as like their own moment of liberation because of rising wages, access to jobs, the sense of like middle-class respectability that's brought by union membership. So it makes sense internally, logically, why this, this ends up being the bargain. The material gains are They're really real. significant. Yeah, They're absolutely real. But then as the gains start to decline and as there are real structural shifts in the nature of the economy, 
um, by the time, let's say, you get to the 1970s, um, not only has this long-term abandoning of the union as like a mass democratic instrument allowed the state to pursue policies that undercut it, undercut union power, um, it also transforms the members themselves and the unions themselves into kind of odd abettors of the businesses in which that they're in an uneasy coexistence with. And that's because if all of your benefits are organized privately through the point of production through work, then you have real incentives for that company to be able to maintain its own profits on the terms that it's established through its managerial prerogatives. In a way, if like General Motors had said, like what's good for General Motors is good for the country, the, the kind of business labor state accommodations that mark the post-war period are almost organized precisely to turn that into a truth, to make union members into um, actors that are unwilling to really systematically critique the decisions that are being made by business owners. And what this means is that by the time we get to the 70s, you have this odd state of affairs that the very instruments, these labor movements, they were able to produce in the 30s fairly dramatic forms of social change and even take over partially a major political party um, are now essentially unable to sustain um, their own like their own social position that the kinds of policies that help generate like social abundance and general benefits or at least for um, especially for white men should be noted in the, the 1950s are no longer sustainable because of precisely the accommodations that were made during this period. And, and as like a, a last point, another thing that it ends up doing is it replaces like this Cold War orthodoxy, replaces solidarities built around work or solidarities in the context of race built around African-American oppression. Like it attempts to replace these solidarities and does, does so especially successfully in the context of labor with a kind of generalized solidarity around um, American nationalism and American state. Like it's we the people that are like the unified site of collective attachment and affection expressed through the flag, through the power that US exerts abroad, through the kind of benefits that you might get um, at home in, in, your, in your job, rather than um, the class that you might be a member of or um, the, the form of labor activity that you might be engaged in. And that has really problematic long-term effects too. Another way to think about this this compact, I think, and this is something that I, I, I talked to uh, historian Lane Wyndham about and that she writes about in her new book, Knocking on Labor's Door, which is about the, the labor movement in the 70s, is that the Cold War labor compact depended on a heavily privatized welfare state. So these things like you mentioned, uh, like healthcare and retirement, were secured from employers through collective bargaining agreements rather than through the state. And that was not only deeply unequal and exclusive in the sense that many who were not white men didn't have access to these things, um, it also was extraordinarily vulnerable to the business reaction when it came in the 70s, when suddenly business was facing a profit crisis and, and and intense international competition like they hadn't really faced before because unlike their competitors in, so, in more social democratic countries, they had these expensive 
benefit plans. And uh, her argument is that thus one of the the obviously one of the first things they did in the face of this intensifying global competition is attack the unions that were costing them so much money uh, with these benefit plans. So the the entire things could have played out very differently if if the uh, if the Cold War order had had include had included um, public benefits instead of more public benefits instead of such heavily privatized ones. A couple of thoughts on this. The, the first is it really highlights the centrality for any kind of genuinely left politics in the present to think seriously about how do you expand the actual bargaining power and you know material power of the social constituencies that are that provide your base that if you're in a context in which you know um, members of a union workers have all of like their financial security economic security tied up with decisions made by business then that really limits the capacity of the union or of those workers to be able to contest the decision-making terms of business. I mean, it essentially hamstrings um, their access to using even instruments like the striker or, um, or, or other kinds of instruments. And then secondly, the other thing that it does is it really breaks down over time um, class-based solidarities because you know, it's absolutely clear that it provides business the cover to then go against unions, but it also makes the unions themselves, um, if not complicit, but like in a position where they feel like they, the negotiations are really negotiations about paring down their own benefits. Um, because what like the people that are working for the company want is they want to be able to keep their jobs because so much of their own security is tied to keeping the job. And so that means that all of the negotiations are going to be about, well, how is it that we can preserve as much of what we have while at the same time maintaining the jobs? And the way that you're going to see, well, who are our actual enemies? Our actual enemies are people in other countries, um, workers or business activists, but let's say workers here that are willing to do the work for, for less money. So you have um, class solidarities undercut a presumption of shared interest with the business actor, and it's a business actor that, in practice, is in, is in fact uh, undermining your own long-term interests. Um, and I think, you know, so I, not to jump ahead historically, but I think this has had a massive impact um, on the the politics of of class and white identity in the U.S. that we see expressed through Trump. In the sense of of the sorts of solidarities that were were built by the political economy of this period, and those that were very much excluded or or marginalized. Yeah, um, we tend to, you know, de-emphasize thinking about like the role that unions play, not just as like special interest groups, but as site as like um, sites of social meaning, as creating particular kinds of worlds in which people live. And one of the things that unions really did for the first two thirds of the 20th century um, is that they provided an alternative space of solidarity and community. And even with all of the problems that, you know, very extensive that uh, we've discussed previously about the kind of racism 
um, that was embedded in uh, the early 20th century, mid 20th century American labor movement. One thing that I think gets under underemphasized is that um, labor politics was built around the idea that your attachments are to people that you have the same class background as. In other words, that what marks you as a member of a community is individuals that engage in the same work. Um, and that's a different way of thinking about solidarity. And it's a, a way of thinking about solidarity that could, and at various moments in American life, certainly has gone hand in hand with a kind of racial inclusiveness. And when that breaks down um, because of the long-term effects of the labor business bargain that we've just been discussing and the, the ways in which then over time, um, the right was able to really just attack um, the, the labor movement, it means that you have um, entire segments of white society um, that really don't have any alternative account of solidarity be, be, besides a kind of white identity politics. Um, you know, I should say that this is also in many ways a function of what it means to have a majority white um, society. So for African-Americans and African-American activists, precisely because you have a subordinated community that's a fraction of the overall society, that there's always this question about like how to think of the relationship between black internal solidarity and coalitional politics. Indeed, this was a big feature of Martin Luther King's um, own discussions and debates about the meaning of civil disobedience. Like what, what does civil disobedience mean and what can it do in a society in which you're attempting to show to the majority the oppressive experiences that are unleashed upon us on a relatively small minority, a minority that can't claim on its own majority status. Um, so that's always a conversation within black politics. But for a white majority, that doesn't necessarily have to be a conversation. You can just have a background presumption of shared white solidarity and identity politics that's just unspoken, that's just part of the drinking water, that's just marked American life. And something that class organization did is at moments it was able to break through that and articulate other forms of, um, of connection. Um, and with that gone, it's really allowed the Republican Party over a number of decades um, and sort of solidifying the Republican like Southern strategy, uh, but then really sort of explicitly expressed in the rise of Trump and a kind of white nationalist politics to play on um, ethno-national racial identity as the primary, if not exclusive site of uh, of solidarity and organization. To what degree does the racial politics of Cold War liberalism play into that as well, in the sense that, as I quoted you earlier, the notion that the achievement of racial equality was thought of as a matter of simply completing the project of liberal integration, it seems like for sure that this is at the roots of superficial neoliberal version of identity politics that we often see today on uh, it being what follows from that notion is that Americans are in essence, if not in practice, just and that all they need is better representation within the current order of things. So we can trace the the genealogy of, of that sort of identity politics, I think. But does that also does that racial ideology of Cold War liberalism also help us think through 
Trumpist white identity politics? Certainly. And, um, you know, again, I think there are a couple, a couple ways this plays out. The first way it plays out is that if the story is just a story about the society is basically just and the problem is, you know, because of a kind of archaic holdover prejudice, not everybody has been included. Then once you actually have formal legal inclusion, you know, in the 60s and 1970s, um, there's a really easy tendency, and you see this not just on the right during the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, but also in the, the center left, to say, well, what is it that these minorities, minority groups, and African Americans and Native peoples, why are they continuing to complain? Yeah, they just got their voting you rights, know, and they're and they're already rioting. Yeah, the country is doing so much better. It's on a progressive upswing. Like we're basically post-racial. Like what is up with this? And it's why. One of the things that's really common if you go back and look at 90s politics, and it's not just the right, like you see this, um, you know, so I, uh, I was recently looking over a Sidney Blumenthal book about the 88 campaign. It's just vitriolic in his criticism of Jesse Jackson. <laughs> and it's all about how like Jackson is just running to be president of black America. And there was uh -huh. a common term about that both right and centrist use. So uh, not Blumenthal, just so I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, be viewed as like sort of saying something that's out of turn. It's not quite accurate, but like that was commonly used, which was racial hucksters of like, there are these quote unquote racial hucksters that are just obsessed with race and are just constantly bringing it back in ways that are problematic. And that absolutely has the long term effect of feeding a particular kind of white politics that says whenever you hear um, African-American or other marginalized groups complaining about inclusion, it's like, what more do you want us to do? And in point of fact, you know, my community is the community that's that's really victimized. Like nobody talks about my own pain and everybody's just going on and on about like the the victimization of these other groups. And it ties to a second point, which is in a way um, kind of counterintuitive. And this is the fact that one of the effects of the structural racial subordination of the US in the US is actually to sustain um, a story, a competing story, let's say, um, within the, the, the Democratic Party, like that's uneasily competing with the one that I just presented. And even within elements of like the Cold, Cold War liberalism, that, you know, actually there still is racial oppression. There still is subordination. And it's appropriate for groups to be organized on terms of like race or gender. This is the defensive policies, like, for example, affirmative action. Um, and that's viewed as a kind of what we can think of um, exception to the general presentation of the society as meritocratic and just. In other words, the experiences that people have in terms of the outcomes in their lives are generally the product of just dessert. But maybe with this exception when it comes to, like, race or histories of exclusion. And I think relatedly, like one of the things that the Trump campaign played on for, um, you know, I don't want to say, um, you know, the, the you know, necessarily poor whites, because I think it has a broader effect than just socioeconomic status. But like one thing that it played on for 
um, this emergent white identity is the sense that, you know, if you're white, the story is meritocracy, like the outcomes are a product of your own, you know, your own actions. But because of the persistence of like identity politics in an explicit way, when it comes to other communities, there's a thought, well, if you're, if you're not white, then there's some kind of exception. And I think that also was a long-term effect of how um, Cold War liberalism conceived of the politics of race. And both of these features, the idea that um, we're kind of past race, but maybe with this potential exception, um, but the society is basically meritocratic, um, created um, a real tendency among whites to say, well, no, wait a second, in this now truly post-racial society, we ourselves are the victims. Um, and it kind of built an internal base of support over decades that sort of exploded in the last few years. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, the, like the combination of, of neoliberalism with Cold War racial liberalism or helps foment this this idea of, of what about our, our grievances? And it's sort of a, a funhouse mirror reaction to a sentiment I've encountered amongst white liberal elites before, which is this sort of empathy um, for for people of color because they're seen as confronting barriers that don't allow them to get what they meritocratically might deserve and just this utter derision for so-called white trash, white poor people, because what excuse do they have for their own failures but themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it- it's part of the, the, the long-term effects of separating race and class in the U.S. So in simplest terms, you know, one of the biggest implications of the hardening of um, post-World War II Cold War orthodoxy was to basically view the U.S. as, you know, an essentially classless society um, that had overcome the kind of European problems of aristocracy at the founding. And that the problem in the U.S., the American dilemma, was a dilemma of race about liberal, liberal um, completion through racial inclusion, what we discussed previously. But in separating race and class, basically held up the U.S. as more or less meritocratic. And in holding up the U.S. as more or less meritocratic, it, it essentially um, disappeared all of the profoundly structural forms of subordination that people experienced in ways that deeply implicated and combined racial and class backgrounds for um, poor whites, but also for the majority of African-Americans. And so the kind of class conscious, um, but also racially conscious poor people's movement that somebody like Martin Luther King was articulating at the end of his life um, was basically dissolved and repressed through the kind of framework of of Cold War politics. Um, And, you know, the basic problems of that framework have been exposed in the last couple of years and they're being articulated, you know, and I think in, in thoughtful and compelling and important ways by authentically left social forces um, within uh, elements of like the, the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, within um, the movement for black lives and within other constituencies. But they've also been played on um, for, with truly like kind of destructive effects. Uh, with the right sort of embrace of of white nationalism as like a central feature of its own political ideology. I think what all of this should really highlight um, 
is that if we're talking about quote unquote like racial hucksterism, um, that the best actual embodiment of it is with folks like Sessions and Cotton and Trump um, and the, the long 20th century history of um, white politicians using racial identity uh, as a way of consciously like, undergirding their own power and contesting forms of class solidarity that would actually confront and undermine structures of privilege and authority. It's a very important and pretty basic point that's often lost in kind of unfortunate debates over race versus class is really this this historical reality that the two are deeply interrelated and that encouraging solidarities around around class is not about is not about marginalizing racial justice issues it's about fighting against white people forming <laughs> solidarities based on whiteness <laughs> absolutely the the primary i mean so we talked about this last time that there are all sorts of problems with a class first perspective that occludes and diminishes the centrality of white supremacy in the kind of the basic structure of American life. And it's a shortcoming um, of the populace and even their best moments, as you know. You, you absolutely. Know. But, um, you know, one of the things that, that class politics was very consciously used for um, by radical politicians and class identity was used for was as a lever or tool for, um, for, for cutting against the kind of presumptive white identification that just wasn't even recognized as such. This episode of The Dig is also brought to you by University of California Press, which is without a doubt one of the best university presses out there. One title you might like is American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear, by Khaled A. Badoon, who I interviewed on the show in September about just this subject. The term Islamophobia may be fairly new, but irrational fear and hatred of Islam and Muslims is anything but. Though many speak of Islamophobia's roots in racism, have we considered how anti-Muslim rhetoric is rooted in our legal system? Using his lens as a critical race theorist and law professor, Khaled Bedoun captures the many ways in which law, policy, and official state rhetoric have fueled the frightening resurgence of Islamophobia in the United States. Bedoun charts its long and terrible history, from the plight of enslaved African Muslims in the antebellum South and the laws prohibiting Muslim immigrants from becoming citizens, to the ways the war on terror assigns blame for any terrorist act to Islam and the myriad trials Muslim Americans face in the Trump era. He passionately argues that by failing to frame Islamophobia as a system of bigotry endorsed and emboldened by law and carried out by government actors, U.S. society ignores the injury it inflicts on both Muslims and non-Muslims. Through the stories of Muslim Americans who have experienced Islamophobia across various racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines, Bedoun shares how U.S. laws shatter lives, whether directly or inadvertently. And with an eye toward benefiting society as a whole, he recommends ways for Muslim Americans and their allies to build coalitions. 
American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear, by Khaled A. Bedoun. Out now from University of California Press. Shifting gears, you write about the 70s as a first crisis of sorts of the Cold War state. There's there's the economic crisis, there's the aftershocks of mass social rebellion, and the American defeat in the war against Vietnam. And what Reagan did, you write, is to try to reset the Cold War clock, nostalgically reaching back to the to the purported good old days, or as he put it in 1980, let's make America great again. I, I thought this was a great point, and I wanted you to expand on it. Particularly what interests me here is that you're making an argument about periodization, and I read tons of books. You know, there's a book called a great book called Pivotal Decade about the 70s. I read tons of book about about the 70s. There's kind of been a, a revival, I think. I don't um, know a lot about the academic trends, in this, but it seems like in recent years there's been a revival of attention to the 70s as this critical juncture, which makes a lot of sense. But but your argument about periodization is that we have to pull back from simply looking at the 70s as this moment of rupture from the post-war order. Uh, a point, uh, an argument that a framework that places the the era of mass unionization, relatively lessened inequality, and the civil rights movement (FDR and LBJ) on sort of one side, and then deindustrialization, financialization, mass incarceration, Reagan and Clinton on the other side. And your argument is that we need to. I mean, I think that that might be. That we do need to look at that rupture, but that we also need to pull back and take note of the continuities between the two periods. Is that right? I should say as maybe a disclaimer that this this essay provides a, a type of meta-narrative that talks about the 40s to, um, the let's say, 2016 as broadly um, a single or continuous period. So it's a way of discussing the, the short American century. And any kind of meta narrative necessarily illuminates some things and excludes other things. Like, I'm not trying to say that my account explains everything about contemporary politics or that it's able to to speak to the profound changes that all of the profound changes that that have taken place during um, these periods. Uh, you know, one of the most important things about the present, for example, is the politics of of Me Too, which you know, I don't think can be reduced to a, an argument about the rise and fall of the Cold War. But I do think that there's some important... I bet we could try. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there's some important continuities, though, um, between the, the 40s and 2016 that are really important to articulate. And this is this is your point about the 70s. So the 70s definitely marks rupture. But the way that I think of it is that the Cold War bargain, both on race and class terms that we've been discussing, was necessarily and inherently unstable. And it was unstable because at the end of the day, the bargain was more than just an incomplete bargain domestically. It was a bargain that failed to address the profound forms of structural oppression that marked American life and that promoted an aggressive and virulent form of American military, uh, militarism that was deeply destructive globally. Um, and, you know, the quote unquote chickens came home to roost in the late 60s and early 70s, where both American domestic and international power 
we're facing profound contestation at home just because of the disconnect between the realities of um, inequality, subordination, and sort of like the, the flowy rhetoric of um, post-World War II bonhomie and, and social agreement. Um, and I think one of the ways to think about what happened starting in the late 1970s with, with the Carter administration and then really getting supercharged with the Reagan administration is that this was one of what's now been a number of different efforts to really revive the basic and broad terms of Cold War compact and agreement around um, racial amelioration, the basic um, um, justness and legitimacy of um, free market capitalism, um, and um, the appropriateness of uh, American hegemony and imperial authority. Um, and it was done in the 70s and early 80s through a language that jettisoned um, New Deal discussions of social democracy and expansive welfare state that emphasized a much more aggressive and virulent form of market politics and privatization that told the story of racial amelioration is not something that really needs to be ongoing, but is basically a completed project that can now be used as proof or justification for American progress and greatness. Um, and that um, in the immediate term in the 1980s um, allowed for a new kind of rebooting of intense Cold War politics in the context of Latin America, and, um, Central America and elsewhere. But over the long term, um, fed a story of, you know, American power is being great because it's good. Um, so this is a kind of revivalism on slightly different terms, but revivalism that has a profound effect on an entire generation of politicians that are shaped by the 80s and 90s, um, from the Clintons all, all the way down to Obama. And then we could tell a similar story of revivalism in the context of 9-11 and 2001. But for me, the, the Cold War writ large that combines, let's say, 45 to 89 and 89 to 2016 is really about cycles in which you have an official ideology that is constantly confronting its own internal and inherent shortcomings that breaks down and then faces real crisis and confrontation and then gets revived in new forms. And this takes place over and over and over again. Um, but within the rubrics for these mainstream elites and the two dominant parties of a shared set of presumptions about American institutions, um, American inclusion and American global power. You argue that the election of Trump, I think, signaled a, a rupture in this elite consensus. What? How did that rupture come about? Was it a matter of the the growing contradictions of the continuing to prevail Cold War ideology that they came into? Increasing contradictions to with 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 real a reality of of stru deep structural dysfunction, um, prevailing ideas at odds with with economic crisis, demographic change, a cascade of 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 small wars, legislative gridlock, the fact that people were voting for one candidate and others were getting elected. Was it a matter because in the seventies you're talking about Reaganism being a way to sort of uh, provisionally resolve the contradictions of the 70s is is the final end of the Cold War that Trump's election signals for you? Is it a matter of 
the political elites running out of provisional resolutions to the, to to these long running contradictions. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that that's precisely the way um, that's precisely the way way to think about it for me, which is um, we're now three decades removed from being able to articulate something like the kind of external ideological enemy and competitor that um, generated elite social cohesion and that was able to blunt um, at least domestically some of the intensity of um, partisanship and party polarization. Um, as a tangent, I should just note that this is not meant as a normative defense of Cold War consensus. Like we should be nostalgic <laughs> for the era of social cohesion. I mean, you know, the early Republic in the late 18th, early 19th century was marked by a fair amount of social cohesion around a shared project of native expropriation and, you know, commitment to expansion through um, coerced African labor. And that some of the great moments in American transformational history are periods of very limited um, elite social cohesion, the early days of Reconstruction, um, the high tide of the New Deal, um, and potentially, if one is, you know, optimistic and perhaps a little bit more optimistic than I am, um, the 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 years to come. Like so, cohesion and agreement among elites is not necessarily something that we should be nostalgic for or look back on with like weepy eyes, um, but it is the case that having a coherent and powerful enemy actually produced various forms of blunted polarization. And then I think that combines with the fact that, you know, the U.S. in the last decade has really witnessed um, the breakdown of, um, you know, many of the institutions that undergirded Cold War consensus. So you have a national security establishment that's taken the country into like numerous um, wars on fraudulent terms that have produced like massive chaos and death. You have um, a news establishment that participated in that effort, including by reproducing in the Times um, false stories about like Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction. You have an, a form of economic expertise um, that helped generate the conditions for the financial crisis. Um, and then alongside like the breakdown in, in, you know, let's say, let's say shared faith around these institutions, the disappearance of a clear external enemy, the ways in which that ended up um, creating much greater and more uninhibited, uninhibited forms of party polarization. Um, you have the simple fact that the, the, the old um, uh, Reaganite Cold War solutions that emphasized um, limited, if any, uh, racial amelioration, um, market solutions to basic social problems, faith in American international power, um, not only failed to resolve profound social crises, themselves actually precipitated and then intensified those crises. And I think all of this created the conditions for what I refer to in the piece as the return of the repressed um, in the form of um, Sanders on the left and the vibrancy of actual left-wing politics. Um, that's the product of a decade plus of incipient grassroots activism going all the way back to the, the Iraq war and then the, the Obama campaign and Black Lives Matter and then the Sanders campaign. And then on the right, um, 
the growing transformation of, let's say, the George Bush Jr. Um, cold, cold warrior right party um, that articulated a language of universalism while engaged in the kind of dog whistles of white nationalism into an explicitly like, ethno-nationalist party with the trappings of economic populism. Before I, I ask more about that Trump and the Republican Party that he uh, managed to take over, you, you mentioned that, uh, and we've discussed this a little bit, that the, the consensus during the Cold War proper was driven in part by having this, this powerful enemy. And I want to ask you about how, to what extent the, the war on terror reordered American domestic politics, because we go from having this the, the, this singular powerful enemy, even though we're fighting small, dirty wars all over the world during the Cold War, to the the war on terror following 9-11. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the that period reshaping domestic politics? Was it, it, it seems like initially it was a reanimation of, of 1990s triumphalism, but, but that it went through a lot of different stages. <laughs> you know, my own view is that it's, it's actually really productive to see the continuities before and after 9-11 rather than thinking of 9-11 as a sharp break. Um, and you can think of this both at the level of policy. You know, many of the policies that get supercharged in the post-9-11 period from um, the use of FISA and world surveillance um, to material support charges for um, suspected terrorists to um, unilateral interventionist foreign policy um, and bombing campaigns um, have their roots in the 1990s, if not earlier. Um, certainly, there's a lot of continuity between um, Clinton-era policy toward uh, Iraq and in the context of Kosovo and what we see as the language preemption that marks um, the Bush years. And there's also continuity in the sense that if neocons in the 90s were in search of an enemy for a sense of national purpose, um, you also have center-left politicians that start using the language of human rights as a way of articulating a defense of humanitarian and then, you know, slowly a kind of general sort of interventionist posture on behalf of American universal principles. Um, and all of these uh, end up, you know, bleeding over to policy post 9-11. In this way, we can really think of 9-11 as another moment for the type, the kind of revival of Cold War impulses around the American security state. Um, you know, one of the things that we tend to forget about the late 90s, early 2000s is that especially in the wake of the, the Bush-Gore campaign, that first year of the Bush administration is marked by real enemy. Um, the types of privatization policies that had marked American foreign policy in the 90s in Eastern Europe had been an abysmal failure. You have um, the bursting of, a, of like the dot-com bubble and real questions about the sustainability of the American economy. You have malaise around American institutions and the Electoral College. And what 9-11 does is it heads off what could have been another kind of rolling um, and sustained crisis around the nature of American institutions and, and classic ideological justifications. And you're absolutely right to note that the, the post 9-11 period goes through its own um, series of stages. The first few years, and this is the period where you, you, know, you don't just have um, Bush and neocon support for the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, but you know, surprisingly broad agreement among establishment figures in both parties 
is a period in which the justification for these enterprises is a kind of classically robust Cold War justification of spreading democracy. Um, and the thought here is that what the U.S. is doing is it's transforming sites of instability into small-scale representations of American principle. This is the idea of, you know, producing Jeffersonian democracy in the Middle East as an example that's going to generate a domino effect in a way that's not that different than the language of the domino effect during Vietnam. It's creating, um, it's kind of creating new cities on, on the hill. Or, like, absolutely. And that's, that's an argument that, you know, Wolfowitz is making, but that's an argument that Friedman is making before Friedman became a kind of joke for many people in the Democratic Party. But there was a time in which, oh, yeah. you know, the serious people in the Democratic Party took that argument as a convincing and compelling argument. Many of those folks have now forgotten that they held those positions. Um, but when that failed, then the next stage was to say, well, actually, it's not spreading democracy. What the U.S. is doing is promoting moderation. So Fareed Zakari and others who had previously defended the Iraq war now start to make arguments that the problem of the Iraq war and the problems of its after effects and the problem in the Middle East and elsewhere is illiberal democracy, that societies that are immoderate when given, you know, uh, empowering forms of um, political institutions will use those institutions illiberally. And so you have to produce moderation by defending the moderate elements within um, non-white societies, particularly in the Middle East. Problem, of course, is that moderation just simply became another word for saying, we'll support the state regardless of how authoritarian it is if it backs Israel and other elements like our own interest in oil, the US's security policies in the region. Um, And over time, you know, that sort of failed on its own terms. And then we end up having the third period, which sort of I see as the second um, Obama administration, so 2012 on, and like the beginnings of the Trump administration era, which is, you know, essentially just a defense of stability. Um, so that there's no, there's no deeper ideological explanation for what the U.S. is doing in the war on terror than simply promoting stability in whatever guise it currently exists. And that stability is supposed to go hand in hand in some sort of inexplicable way with American national security imperatives. And another way of telling the story of the end of the Cold War, and 2016 is the last election of the Cold War, and the U.S. is now in a kind of um, post-Cold War um, place, is to highlight how the U.S.'s rhetoric and justifications around the war on terror have gone from self-consciously sort of emancipatory arguments um, that are supposed to actually improve the lives of people on the ground um, to arguments that are basically in defense of power and existing power establishments bereft of any kind of meaningful justification. Um, And it produces the strange state of affairs, um, perhaps not all that strange or surprising, where effectively the U.S. has now outsourced its Middle East policy to Saudi Arabia and Israel in various ways. And its policies don't have any clear justification beyond just sort of the extension of American dominion. I think the 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 shift in public opinion from faith in this um, neoconservative u- utopian vision of of um, U.S. military and and foreign power, a true faith in that, as the war on terror becomes 
permanent, futile, and obviously counterproductive with the rise of ISIS, which wouldn't have happened if the U.S. had never invaded Iraq. And I think that becomes very obvious to a lot of people that 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 this shift in public sentiment around the war, it's a turning against the wars, but not in an anti-imperialist sense in any way for most Americans, that the extent to which that shift in public sentiment was critical to Trump's appeal is too often neglected in accounts of Trump's victory. I think it's all encapsulated in, in him saying we shouldn't have invaded Iraq, but since we did, we should have taken the oil. I think that really perfectly that and keep the Muslims out, like instead of converting the Muslims to democracy, well, screw screw them. We tried to offer them democracy and they're just trying to blow us up. So let's let's get out of their country. Stop trying to promote democracy. Take their oil if we can and keep them from coming in. That that really encapsulates a broader shift amongst many in the American electorate. I think there's a lot to say about this, that, you know, it's it's noteworthy that the relevant, you know, supposedly anti-war candidate in the last election was Trump. Um, Even though, of course, like, you know, Trump actually did support the war um, and is engaged in yet another one of his examples of like, um, you know, obfuscation and lying. Um, But Trump's language around the war perfectly encapsulated in the the phrase that you highlighted um, also spoke to something that's been de-emphasized, which is the extent to which white rural communities really bore, um, you know, a significant brunt of just the violence and damage, um, both abroad and at home, um, of the war efforts themselves. Uh, and that's that's just a fact that the traditional Republican Party wasn't talking about. And it's also something that the Democratic Party, um, you know, hadn't necessarily uh, highlighted in various significant ways. Um, and, you know, it's part of why the Bush years have basically been written out of the official record of the Republican Party, something that we're, we're seeing um, at present. But there's something else that I think is really worth noting about what you said, which is the way in which it highlights the centrality of combining domestic and foreign policy when thinking about the war. And by this, I mean that in the years before Trump, there was a kind of tendency among certain people on the left um, to, to be willing to engage in common projects with the Ron Paul types in the Republican Party that were critical of the war. So like, you know, making alliances among strange bedfellows. And, you know, perhaps as we'll get to, like I'm all for various kinds of coalitional politics, but I think that they have to really be generated on very specific terms. The problem here, as you were highlighting, is that the argument against the war that Trump, Ron Paul, and others started to make was an argument that as it um, has it's emerged over time is a deeply isolationist one and one that's really built on a kind of racial exclusivity. And that harkens back um, to the ways in which um, isolationist politics in the late 19th, early 20th century in the US was not a politics of inclusion and emancipation. It was a politics about profound racial difference and the impossibility of other communities being able to enjoy anything like real democracy. 
Um, and in a way, all of that gets missed if you just sort of like separate the domestic and the foreign. And it also, the other thing that's missed about it is how the kind of anti-war pro-stability isolationist position as articulated by somebody like Trump or as expressed in various ways through like the Rex Tillerson's of the world in the state, in the, the state department is a position that's meant to undergird the interests of business. That business works better when and business interests work best when we don't worry about the internal politics of other countries and we just maintain our alliances with various kinds of authoritarians. Now, that's a kind of posture that may oppose a particular act of intervention, but is fundamentally in conflict with any effort to think seriously about the types of dynamics that could sustain progressive coalitions at home, as well as alliances internationally among groups that are oppressed. Now, all of this is not to say that we should go back to a world of quote-unquote human rights and humanitarian interventionism of the type that Samantha Power and others articulated, or that we should be Pollyannish about liberal internationalism, which was hardly, hardly liberal and incredibly destructive. But it is to say that there needs to be a serious conversation about how you can be a left internationalist that recognizes how domestic and foreign are interconnected and how that interconnection can both um, articulate alliances between oppressed groups and be opposed to the imperialist impulses and interventionist tendencies of the national security state. I think Trump's bellicosity towards North Korea is a case in 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 point in terms of thinking about um, uh, the, the the dangers of these sort of cross uh, cross the aisle strange bedfellow alliances around foreign policy because i mean in part trump is able to reconcile his the isolationism he ran on with uh potentially pushing us into a nuclear war with north korea because he is unstable and inconsistent and a profoundly strange individual idiosyncratically so obviously but i think it's also because there are are, are certain ways in which it turns out that certain versions of isolationism are compatible with certain versions of military interventionism. And I think this is particularly true, perhaps, as we witness the increasing automation and technologization of American warfare, you know, moving from not only a period where where infantry was at the lead to air war, but a particular type of air war that whose pi- drones whose pilots are sitting somewhere in i don't know like nevada in a in a in a small in a building i mean it's also i think important so i think that's a deep point about the present um but it's also important i think historically to recognize that um you know internationalists have not been the only ones that were engaged in conquest and intervention um that you can tell a story about 19th century american life as really built around an isolationist sentiment that says that the U.S. is safe behind the the, the ocean, that it shouldn't engage in, um, you know, meddling with or entanglements with um, European powers, but also that the country is an ex- it is an expanding project that faces continuous threats from racial outsiders that can't understand internal freedoms and that those threats have to be suppressed on a continuous basis, be they native peoples, um, be they 
um, you know, Mexicans in the context of the Mexican-American War, be they domestic slave insurrections internally. Um, and, you know, in the contemporary rubric, there's a way in which this is obviously anachronistic. Those forces could be described as a kind of isolationist, but committed to an aggressive and virulent form of militarism. And that's, you know, obviously no analogy is perfect, but we can see continuities with how um, the Trump form of white nationalism can oppose the Iraq war, can say that the Bush rhetoric, that's a Cold War rhetoric about spreading democracy is fundamentally flawed on kind of ethno-national terms, while at the same time seeing the country as surrounded by enemies and enemies that might have to be militarily confronted because of the nature of inherent permanent civilizational conflict. This is precisely the Bannonite worldview, which on the one hand can be isolationist, but on the other hand is almost hoping for um, a racially defined global conflagration with North Korea, with China, or with Iran. And uh, that we will only be able to fight if we allow the the, the generals to stop fighting with one hand, you know, tied behind their back or whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, um, there's always been problems in American life in thinking of isolationism as necessarily anti-imperialism, anti-imperial um, versus thinking of like internationalism as, as imperial um, that there are many sort of cross cutting valences and in, in ways in which, Isolation, isolationism and internationalism can both sort of sustain various um, forms of imperial power. Yeah, the, the the significant difference on some level being that the Wolfowitz types would at least have the pretense, and I think maybe sincerely held, as scary as that might be, of 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 their ideological project of spreading democracy, where certain people in Trump's orbits are are perfectly happy to to turn any country that dares cause us trouble into a parking lot. The one thing that I would caution us not to do is to is to uh, I would caution us to avoid any kind of nostalgia for Cold War rhetoric, because the one thing that is certainly the truth is that if we just look at sheer like violence and misery, that what the Bush administration wrought in the first decade of the 20th century, you know, significantly worse than anything that we've seen to date under the Trump administration, and let's say more generally. You know, what What was the Cold War period marked by? It was marked by genocidal violence that the U.S., um, you know, endorsed and was complicitly involved in in places like Indonesia. Um, you know, intense violence in, in Vietnam, elsewhere. And that, you know, in a way you can tell the story of the Cold War as one where the very rhetoric of uh, the ideological rhetoric of improvement, shared community, universalism, you know, gave meaning, strength, purpose, vigor to acts of really extreme violence. And perhaps the breakdown of that rhetoric um, can, in its own weird way, have certain types of constraining effects. We, we've talked a little about, about Trump's foreign policy um, that he articulated in what you call the the last election of the Cold War. I want to ask you about what Democrats had an offer. There was Hillary Clinton, obviously, who made what what you say is a is just sort of a classic old fashioned Cold War liberal argument. And then there were then there was Bernie Sanders, who was was obviously mold shattering and 
in many ways, in, including in, in that he was, uh, you know, voted against the Iraq war and was a critic of it. But he didn't talk much about foreign policy at all, um, save for this one debate where he really wonderfully exclaimed that Henry Kissinger is no friend of mine and went on a uh, sort of diatribe about about the history of U.S. intervention that I'd never seen anything like in that sort of forum. But he generally didn't talk about it. And I'm wondering what what you make of the discussion around foreign policy in the 2016 Democratic primary and within left of center American politics right now generally. I do think implicitly uh, Sanders describing himself as a democratic socialist um, had real foreign policy resonances um, because in a way what it what it marked and along with um, you know the the shifting public opinion data about how Americans view capitalism versus socialism it 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 marked a claim that um, somebody that's that asserts, regardless of whatever it might be like the limitations of their underlying politics, like asserts a straightforwardly leftist posture, um, can't really be red baited within a democratic primary in the way that, you know, had been the case going all the way back to what happened to to Wallace in the 1940s. And that's actually, I think, a significant event. So just using the term socialism has a kind of meaning. I mean, certainly up until um, very recently, I mean, it's something that if you were, you know, if you were on the left and wanted to be taken seriously, you had to speak in hushed tones or or through terms that didn't invoke the kind of external specter. So I think that that's actually a significant point. But I also think that you're right to note that it's a it's a real problem of the campaign. Um, in the sense that what um, what Sanders did by essentially avoiding the foreign policy questions is that everyone, of course, understood that he was the anti-war candidate and understood that his own background meant that he was going to be suspicious of um, American um, global authority in ways that the Clinton campaign, you know, could never articulate. But it reinforced the argument that really the national security experts, the the serious folks in the room, they're the ones that have a systematic account of like how American power works and that there's a kind of naivete to the left. Um, I should add that elements within the Sanders campaign and activists that supported him as well as um, folks that are part of the broader kind of left social movement um, framework. So you see this, the movement for black lives have been really thoughtful and comprehensive about our, about laying out what a, um, a left and internationalist agenda for foreign policy would be one that confronts the national security establishment. Um, but in a way, by avoiding the question, um, it gave a kind of gravitas um, to, to the national security wing. And in doing so, to, to Hillary's argument, uh, which was attempting to shift the debate to from the significant policy disagreements between uh, Clinton and Sanders to a question of of experience and competence onto, onto, onto a technocratic ground where I think Sanders could have really flipped that on its on its head more by talking about foreign policy and being like 
if your foreign policy experience um, involves, you know, uh, voting to invade Iraq, then that's obviously experience in doing horrible things that this country doesn't need more of. Avoiding the question basically allowed um, Clinton to transform the, the debate into one about competence, because the thought is that you need somebody that you know, that that's capable of dealing with like the profound crises. And, you know, Sanders did attempt to address this by highlighting this question about like, well, it's not about experience. It's a matter of judgment. Um, but it could have been done in a much more systematic way, because the simple truth is that, you know, Clinton has been the face of a particular kind of American, not just hawkishness, but, you know, national security establishment that not only defended the Iraq war, but then in the context of the Iraq war, she was the person within the Obama administration that was pushing for the intervention in Libya, which has also turned out to be just a massive disaster and something that would have been self-evident in 2011 as well. Um, so the refusal to contest Clinton on those terms, I think, has been a problem. And I think it's actually um, been a general problem of the quote-unquote economic populist wing of the Democratic Party, which is to, to think of the struggle over the future of the party as not one that's just about um, reviving social welfareism, but about transforming the orientation and purposes of the state itself, like a, away from a militarized national security establishment that engages in incarceration at home and um, surveillance and security practices, both at home and abroad, um, to you know, a state that's meant to be democratically controlled and emancipatory on both economic grounds, but also in terms of the kinds of foreign policy commitments it supports. Before we get more into the current state of the the left, I wanted to ask you another question about Trump's campaign and victory. You write that he revived a right-wing position that had been long in the political wilderness during the, the Cold War era, and you describe it as perhaps the most powerful pre-Cold War ideological position in American history. And you say that Trump succeeded where predecessors like George Wallace had fallen short, in part because the Cold War, the, its 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 long duration, I guess, had made the party establishment unable to realize how serious the threat of overt white supremacy could be. And I think that's that's right. But I also think that it's a different Republican Party, a transformed Republican Party had for years prior to Trump also become had also become more openly or brazenly white supremacist in some ways. A way to talk about this is that the Republican Party's official ideology and the narrative that it tells, for example, about the Reagan years um, is uh, the ideology that was expressed by Bush Jr., which is it's a party committed to a brand of American exceptionalism that takes seriously the project of universality, um, that understands um, the U.S. as bound to a set of inclusive commitments, that engages with the idea of the country as a nation of immigrants, um, that valorizes the civil rights movement. But it's a party that, you know, essentially ignores um, the far more like complex history of how the modern Republican Party, starting in the 1960s, very consciously um, through a Southern strategy, um, transformed. And the ideology that marked 
that transformation meant that the party increasingly over time, and I should note that this, this period marks also the decline of the kind of social cohesion that um, animated Cold War politics, over time just embraced um, various modes of old style white nationalist politics, but through, you know, but undercover dog whistle. So the official ideology doesn't talk about you know, uh, Reagan beginning his 1980 campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, um, you know, the, the site where uh, freedom riders were viciously murdered or the party's opposition, including Reagan's opposition to a holiday for Martin Luther King. Um, you know, it doesn't talk about the Willie Horton ads and all of the ways in which the party very consciously played on racial politics as a way of sustaining its, its you know, its, its new set of coalitional alliances. And then even later um, maybe, on, the the you know the during the Tea Party turn, a kind of doubling down on 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 aspects of their their racial politics. I think absolutely. And so maybe a way to talk about this is there had been an official ideology for the party, and that ideology for the party was sort of framed through Cold War judgments about race, and then there had been a growing and increasingly sort of like, you know, essential element of party politics, which was subterranean, but was at the heart of like the base. It's the, the support that the party received from elements of its own base. And what, in a way, the, the Trump campaign did is it just exploded the divide between the official ideology and the subterranean politics that actually marked the party. Um, and, you know, in doing so, highlighted the ways in which, like, you know, brand of white nationalism is just essential to um, the party's sort of, like, compositional framework. I should add something else, which is when I said that, you know, Trump embodied a return of perhaps the most powerful brand of politics in American history, what I really meant was that kind of Jacksonian combination of white nationalism, um, even though it's, it's anachronistic in various ways to talk about the politics of the 1830s as, as white necessarily. It's, a, it's you know, more clearly understood as a, a brand of Anglo-European um, settler nationalism that's uh, racially understood. But in any case, like white nationalism with economic populism, um, and it's pretty clear that on on the economic populism ground, the Trump administration has essentially taken on board um, elements of like the traditional uh, anti-big government, pro-market, um, um, you know, Republican Party that's that, that's been sort of like the common mainstream for the last half century. With some mercantilist um, trade policy, maybe. Exactly. But the reason why I think it's the... the that was actually important in 2016 is because one of the things that 2016 exposed was that that little government position that you associate, let's say, with Ryan and Mitch McConnell and other elements of the elected Republican establishment actually had very limited mass appeal. And you see this even in the fact that the periods in which Trump's approval ratings have really declined have not been around his kind of like white nationalist rhetoric, but it's been around the actual substantive policy agendas of the Republican Party, from um, the effort to get rid of people's health care um, to the recent uh, 
tax cut. I mean, it's a it's a remarkable moment to think that tax cuts are now actually deeply unpopular in American life, and there would actually be far greater support for tax hikes for the rich tied to massive social spending programs. Um, and in a way, part of what's made you know I'd say Trump and Trumpism less you know maybe it's dangerous is not the right word, um, but it's undercut I think the the lasting power of Trumpism is how Trump hasn't actually embodied um, that kind of classic combination of economic populism and white nationalism that really muddies the ideological waters. It's tough, for example, for historians to make sense of the Jacksonian period. Was Jackson a conservative because of the centrality of Jacksonian politics to native native um, elimination, genocidal politics towards native peoples in defense of slavery? Or was he a progressive because it's a period of universal white suffrage and defensive, you know, small scale producerist democracy? Um, and that, it's that uneasy combination that somebody like George Wallace actually embodied in the 1960s um, and why he was able to get such extensive white labor support in his runs for president within the Democratic um, Democratic Party. Um, and whereas whereas Trump that, is a grifter, is a grifter, which is also very telling about our moment, maybe. <laughs> absolutely. In a way, the worry that I have today is if we're in a post-Cold War moment truly, and things are much more ideologically open, I think that means that they're much more ideologically open for an authentically left politics that like can speak those names that previously, you know, one could not utter. Like you can talk about socialism and white supremacy, but it's also much more politically open for like a genuinely committed um, ideologue that has charismatic political authority that wants to recombine um, white nationalism with elements of, of, a, of a kind of like labor or white working class um, politics. Um, a more and, loyal Bannonite. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's potentially, um, you know, something that's on the horizon as a, a real and deep concern. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, your host. We started this show as an experiment in late 2016, after Trump had been elected president and I had been laid off. And it worked. It turns out that thousands of people find our in-depth analysis of capitalism, patriarchy, and racism immigration politics, mass incarceration, and the drug war, useful in their struggles to transform our dystopian world into something better. We can only do this show with listener support, which means your support. So please join the hundreds of listeners who have already done so and make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. It'll only take a sec. Thanks, and back to the show. Another concern is what happens with the embattled establishment. And you argue that establishment attempts to revive the old status quo are inextricably linked to an attempt to revive the, the Cold War framework, which is which is dead. It's over in some sense. And thus, that they will likely fail. Recently, growth rates have picked up all over the world. And that has led many in the 
Davos crowd to to hope, I think, that the populist threat might be waning, that the established order can can weather this storm, that Trump is an unpleasant aberration. And after he's voted out of office in 2020, we can all return to to normal. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just deeply wishful thinking. I mean, um, I think what the Obama years highlight is that, you know, it's really problematic to focus on macroeconomic indicators, like whether it's like the stock market or um, marginally rising uh, growth rates. That the real issue has been a question of distribution, which is the divisions divisions of the spoils. The the country continues to be and has long been one of profound abundance. And the issue has been that that abundance has been divided in ways that make precarious the lives of large segments of society while giving a very small number, like the few at the top, um, you know, incredible benefits, which allows them to assert power over politics, over our constitutional structure, over legal institutions, and in just like everyday encounters at work and at home. Um, And that's a problem that is a structural one that simply cannot be addressed through broad changes in macroeconomic indicators. It's why, you know, my own view is that I think it's very likely that just the general disgust for for Trump and for folks within the Republican Party might mean that you're going to have the return to power in both parties of um, various kinds of centrist elements. You anticipated but, my next question, which is how... I, what lessons, maybe quite mistakenly, might be learned from a wave election? The lessons are going to be different depending on who is it that Democrats put up to run in these general elections. But I could imagine a situation where you have, not unlike you know Doug Jones in Alabama, a whole bunch of centrist Democrats winning. And it'll be read as um, a return to normalcy and a victory of American principles over like the kind of hysteria of the moment. But the larger argument of the piece is really that, you know, it's the failure of Cold War ideas that have generated um, our own particular crisis. And that, you know, if you have centrist Democrats that come back and just again engage in various kinds of ameliorative policies, maintain their allegiances with um, corporate power, um, pursue kind of privatized and limited economic reforms, persist in a kind of aggressive, um, you know, foreign policy um, that, you know, it might not happen immediately. It might take an election cycle or two, but we're going to see the same cyclical effects because the solutions are just simply incompatible with the profundity of like the structural problems that the country faces. And honestly, you can tell the same story with the Republican Party. Like the Republican Party now believes that it's not that it's Trump's party, but that the party has defeated and absorbed Trump. I mean, that's part of the the love affair with Trump, that he has no ideological commitments. Recall that, you know, um, Trump was excited about the possibility or was open, let's say, to the possibility of Kasich as the VP candidate, giving him the ability to control both domestic and foreign policy. Um, and, but what is it that the Republican Party was willing to, has been willing to come up with? It's basically like the only idea it has are tax cuts. And, you know, the fact that those tax cuts are just really weak sauce 
as a way of addressing the real problems that its own constituents face. I mean, speaks to the fact that like the party is run out of ideas. And they don't even, yeah, and it doesn't resonate at all with where the Trumpist base of the party is. No, I mean, it's, you know, I think it's, it's noteworthy that the Republican policy agenda um, over the last year has been so deeply unpopular in bipartisan terms. Like it's unpopular with the base of its own party and it's unpopular generally. And that's because we now live in a world in which even the people that are voting for Trump that are part of the base believe that the government has a responsibility to, to address basic social problems and that tax cuts are bad policy, that they help the rich. I mean, it's kind of a remarkable situation where you have polling where people that might actually get marginal benefits of a tax cut still say that they're not going to get any benefits. And that's that's speaking to the idea that the country, in a sense, faces these profound um, economic conflicts. Um, so the problem isn't just a problem for the Democrats. It's a problem for mainstream elements of both parties, because even if they're able to wrest power from like the Sanders and and Trumps of the world, though, of course, I want to make clear that I'm not saying that there's any kind of equivalence between the two. But let's say the the positions that have not been classically accepted within the parties, um, you know, it's not clear that they have the capacity to deal with the larger multi-generational problems that the country faces. And certainly the capacity to deal with the breakdown of the country's, um, you know, political institutions, the constitutional structure. Demonization of MS-13 can only get them so far, I'm I'm both hoping and guessing. Finally, tr- turning back to the, 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 the left, you write that it's more ideologically assertive today than at any time since the 60s and maybe even the 30s, but obviously it doesn't have very much power. Generally speaking, what's your diagnosis of the, the present state? And then obviously I have some more specific questions. <laughs> I think the way that the movement for Black Lives and um, Occupy and the Sanders campaign over the last half decade have transformed the public conversation um, around questions of race and class are really remarkable. Um, and I would frankly... I would, uh, you know, add um, other social movements to this story as well. Certainly, um, immigration rights protests going back to 2006, um, the politics around uh, Me Too, sexual harassment, and the revival of um, a really sort of self-conscious and assertive feminism as well. So we have a variety of different um, profound bases for left politics. But these bases are largely extra institutional. In other words, like the power is in um, in public advocacy, in protests and targeted protests and mass rallies, but it's not in wielding power over actual institutions. And so when I say that whereas the left is as powerful as it's been in decades, you know, the real difference to me and in a way this might actually be noteworthy is that like that even in the 60s you know you you had institutional sites that could house social bases you had like the institutions of the civil rights movement from you know the um SCLC to SNCC to CORE to the Panthers to you know um Drum, drum, like you name it, so that that you had 
the institutional sites of the civil rights movement. Then you also had um, uh, labor unions, um, which still really actually had um, heft and, and gravitas in a way that you know just hasn't been as central recently. And, and from and from the what, 30s through the 70s, you I mean these are less significant, but you have cadre based uh, communist and socialist organizations who are who are out there doing various things with more or less uh, sometimes with more sometimes with less effectiveness. Absolutely, um, and that's not, and then of course there's like the student the politics of the student movement. But the the main point that I want to make is that that it was both extra institutional and institutionalized in ways that allowed uh, movement activists to contest um, the terms of both the state and of traditional party politics. Um, you know, there was a um, there was like a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that was contesting the terms of the mainstream Democratic Party um, in the 1960s. And, you know, that's in many ways the thing that's missing from contemporary American politics, which is like the institutionalization of left power. And you can see it in lots of different ways. If we just sort of think of it expansively, um, it's in kind of like the decline of the union movement and the need really, I think, to to strengthen and reassert um, the labor movement. Um, but it's also in just uh, who is it that over the last set of decades has risen to power in the Democratic Party? I mean, I think it's really noteworthy that progressive voices related to the Democratic Party are either essentially under 35 or in the case of somebody like Sanders, <laughs> over 75. Because there's essentially four decades of people that learned. This includes you know, my own cohort of folks that came of age in the late 90s that like learned that the way that you rise politically was by accepting a particular kind of centrist dogma. Um, and then you have all these Gen X fakers, you know, Gillibrand, uh, Cory Booker, um, which totally. which is to the left's credit, but it's dangerous as well. It's a, it's an opportunity. It, it, it's great that me- Medicare for all appears to be a litmus test for serious 2020 aspirants in the Democratic Party. But at the same time, like those aren't left candidates. Absolutely, which is, I think that's another indicator of the power of left politics today. The fact that, um, you know, that that you have positions that as recently as a decade ago, um, no kind of credible or self-respecting Democrat would have necessarily taken on if they wanted to to rise to the presidency or national power, but that now just, you know, are taken for granted. I can't repeat enough that in, in I say this in like multiple many, many shows, I think. But in 2006, Hillary Clinton thought what a serious Democratic presidential aspirant had to do was vote for 700 miles of border wall in the 2006 Secure Fence Act. That's yeah, a big mean, change a, 10 years later, uh, more than a little over 10 years later. That, that's a remarkable shift. But, you know, I think the point is that you you can't so you have to have external pressure over centrist politicians and that external pressure absolutely produces better policy like nixon let's recall um was very close to signing a bill that would have provided universal child care um and in various ways like the nixon administration expanded elements of um the national the national welfare infrastructure that's a product of the times and external pressure but there's no replacement for authentically like left politicians, both that are contesting electoral position, but also that can just staff bureaucratic infrastructures at the local, state, and national level. Because you also need to have 
um, truly left-wing individuals that are implementing policy because that the act of policy implementation is absolutely tied to the set of presumptions, assumptions, judgments that people have about how they interact you know, with other citizens at sort of both like a, a grassroots level, but also how they interact with like the large scale institutions that have grown up over the last decades, whether we're talking about like business regulatory institutions or the carceral state or the national security state. One basic problem you identify that the left faces is the structure of the state. And you argue that the left is not yet ready to tackle this in part because today's left, unlike our pre-Cold War predecessors or even some of the 1960s movements, does not seriously take seriously the need to transform the state and its institutions, that there's this sort of constitutional hegemony that reigns supreme even on the fairly radical left. And your argument is that we need to make democratization demands in terms of both the workplace and in government central to left politics. Explain what you mean. One of the things that um, Cold War orthodoxy did is it created this venerative glaze over the basic institutions of the state. Um, in the 1930s, in the 1920s, um, the predominant position, as I mentioned before, was that the U.S. wasn't necessarily democratically organized, and it wasn't democratically organized for the simple fact that the institutions of government particularly those structures established by the, the Constitution, produced numerous veto points that made mass democracy incredibly difficult to implement um, in the form of an unelected judiciary that struck down labor legislation, in the form of a divided Congress between the House and the Senate, and the Senate that was um, organized to preserve both Jim Crow interests, but also um, in deeply unrepresentative ways to overrepresent certain parts of the country as opposed to others in terms of the electoral college. Um, the, in a sense, the entire constitutional order was built on a certain set of checks that constrained um, real democratic authority. And the argument was like, this wasn't just by accident. It was because the founders themselves, and Madison in particular, saw the relevant threat to free or Republican government as coming from um, ordinary citizens, majoritarian impulses, especially like class impulses, and in particular ignored the kind of power that socioeconomic elites could wield um, invisibly, let's say, through checks at all these various levels of government to to limit... As Nancy McLean writes, though, this wasn't enough for Calhoun. <laughs> no, yeah. That to... to that, that, to, to limit, yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, the, the, this kind of invisible government could preserve various types of embedded um, class hierarchies while making it really hard to implement like very popular mass social policies. Um, part of the story about the Cold War is to basically redescribe the Constitution not as a decision-making structure, but as a symbol of American ideals, universal aspirations, and as expressed in a certain set of negative rights, freedoms from government, particularly around speech, religion, and other kinds of freedoms. And what it did is it really shut down the conversation about like, well, what is the nature of our own institutions? And part of the reason why that was possible was because the country was living through this period where the power of the of the labor movement had produced the kinds of supermajorities that could overcome some of these built-in limitations 
and that you had the type of social cohesion that allowed elements of the Republican and Democratic Party to reach agreement around social policy and, and racial reform. And really what you can tell as the story of the last couple decades is that the kinds of exceptional circumstances that allowed the constitutional system to operate without absolute paralysis have basically disappeared. So like there are no supermajorities that can overcome the built-in constraints. Um, party polarization means that you can't expect any kind of real agreement. And the constitutional structure itself is now exposed to something that's really limited as a tool of implementing policy. I mean, the Constitution is a remarkably short document, 4,400 words. Um, it's incredibly difficult to amend formally. In fact, um, by some estimates of social scientists, it's the hardest document to amend globally of all the, the, the constitutions. Um, it's marked by extensive checks and balances, and it has very limited explicit rights provisions, only really those that are like negative rights provisions that are tied either to freedoms from government or what we just would um, can think of as like very expensive property rights provisions. And it means that much change ends up being funneled through an unelected judiciary. And that only ends up reinforcing the problems of disagreement and paralysis that mark the government, the tendencies to move decision-making outside of the legislature, either to the presidency, through bureaucratic initiatives that are also in various ways um, cloaked in secrecy, or <clears throat> um, to, to judicial decisions in which judges are, are the final arbiters of various kinds of social policies. Um, and I think what, you know, in a way has been ignored is that all of this was stuff that was diagnosed in earlier generations. And as part of the argument for why we should think of the civil rights movement or the labor movement or the, the women's movement in the context of the right to vote as mass democratic insurgencies that aim to take a society that is not in fact democratic and transform it into one that is emancipatory because it actually allows for popular power to determine political decision making. And in a way, that's a kind of sentiment that just hasn't been part of the conversation. And even now, there's a tendency to think of like the Sanders campaign is about social welfare. When I think a better way to imagine the idea of a political revolution, the Sanders campaign or Moral Mondays um, in North Carolina or what you're seeing take place in cities like Jackson, Mississippi, or the, the vision statement of the movement for black lives, or even the arguments of um, immigration activists, is that really the institutions of state and economy have to be reshaped in ways that make them actually amenable. Now, if in the past that meant getting rid of the Senate, um, formally including new constitutional amendments that have positive socioeconomic rights, ensuring that everybody has um, full voting rights. Um, you know, some of those still obviously apply to the present, but it means having a comparable agenda that's an institutional agenda of transformation that would improve the bargaining position and material power of um, progressive social constituencies, while at the same time altering the nature of the state. Um, and you can see this in everything, potentially from getting rid of, um, of felony disenfranchisement and taking seriously the curtailments of voting rights to um, questions related uh, to uh, the, the limited um, powers of union organization and striking 
that exists currently to ending the criminal status of immigrants to um, a variety of other um, potential creative policies uh, dealing with like the, the corrupting influence of money in the political system and on and on and on. But that has to be a comprehensive agenda that's understood as an effort to democratize a society and that's tied to improving the practical political power of um, the actual real social constituencies that would be the heart of any truly like left-wing politics. So sometimes it's, it's, it's hard not to be pessimistic about uh, democratizing the, the state, given that, um, it, as you mentioned, it's resilient legally. It's very hard to, to – it's one, per, perhaps the hardest uh, constitution in the world to change. It's also – and I, I think this is a related factor. It's resilient ideologically. I mean we're, we're heading to a point where um, – I heard E.J. Dion say this recently – that by 2050 or so – 70% of Americans will live in 15 states, meaning that 70% of Americans will have 30 senators and 30% of Americans will have 70 senators. And already we're in this situation where arguably if we had the popular vote in this country rather than the Electoral College, there wouldn't have been a single Republican president since George H.W. Bush left office. So I, I do wonder how how much absurd, more absurd things have to get until people start like break out of this uh, constitutional hegemony that that operates. I, I agree c completely with the sentiment. Um, the one thing that I would just caution is that, you know, I, what I think this speaks to is the necessity of articulating as part of any left-wing politics an alternative theory of constitutional design. Of like, well, how is it that the institutions are actually supposed to be organized? Like, what would um, parliamentary democracy that's responsive and reflective of the actual citizenry look like. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the solution is in like a new formal constitutional convention. Um, you know, one of the things that I think people forget is that uh, that kind of broad scale transformation, you know, it works best oftentimes after a revolutionary moment. In other words, if you actually are able to seize control of the state, then you could engage in questions about constitutional change um, in a more systematic way that are tied to a competing and contesting theory of design that's backed by actual popular support. To ha try to do that without the kind of transformative politics that precedes it creates the condition whereby you can allow, you can you know generate a convention that just allows business interests in the far right to reinscribe the terms of the state. So. You have to both be sophisticated about the critique of the constitutional order and have incipient ways of imagining reform that in a way can prefigure a truly transformed society by improving the power position of uh, marginalized communities, while at the same time recognizing that, that you need particular kinds of circumstances to actually be able to implement what, what amounts to much more holistic or transformative change. You make another argument about the the current situation of the left that I think is provocative and fruitfully so, which is that the left needs to prepare to govern if it wants to do so. And uh, you ask who, if Sanders had won in 2016, quote, would have filled more junior roles in, say, the National Security Agency. And that might sound like heresy to many on the left, but I'm really glad that you phrased it that way, because if we do truly want to govern... We have to have a clear program for how we'd run even parts of the state, like the state's repressive apparatus, 
that we're justifiably critical of and that we want to utterly transform to the extent of doing away with them in their as we know them. Like, for example, what would a radically transformed intelligent apparatus that provides the sort of necessary security that people demand of the state rather than promoting global hegemony, hegemony look like? And who would who would be the person to, to get us there? And I see some positive trends here. And the one that really comes to mind is the grassroots organizing behind Larry Krasner's campaign for district attorney in Philadelphia. Absolutely. Which involves some of the most radical critics of mass incarceration in that city. So I don't know. It was a very interesting point you made. So I think there's a lot to be said. I mean, the first thing is for all of the right um, discussion of like the deep state and the ways in which um, it invokes um, a really kind of troubling uh, politics where you're accusing the FBI of uh, not being uh, conservative friendly enough. Um, There is a simple truth, which is if Sanders or some other like actually left wing politician took over control of the federal bureaucracy, you'd have elements, really significant elements of that federal bureaucracy tied to business interests, tied to mass incarceration, hyper-incarceration, tied to the national security state that would systematically resist any policies of reform. And you'd also just, not just at the political appointee level, like you'd actually have to staff the positions. And the simple truth is that part of the way in which the mainstream Democratic Party has just eliminated left-wing voices from its own infrastructure is that we have many decades in which um, there are people ready and willing within the Democratic Party to take on those positions, but those people are ones whose perspectives have been very obviously culled, um, have been sort of developed to mimic uh, the same set of uh, national security politi- policies and you know pro-market uh, but limited social welfareist um, ideas. So you'd actually need to to be able to educate, train, and have um, folks that are ready to take on these positions on day one, and to take on these positions in a really interesting posture. And there's a reason why I use the National Security Agency specifically. Like my own perspective is that the national security establishment, um, you know, systematically promotes a state interest that's incompatible with the interests of most of the country's citizens, and that largely undermines self-determination globally. So it's like a deeply suspicious view, and it's one that also questions the expansive um, surveillance state that's emerged uh, with, the, with the national security establishment over the last half century plus. Um, but what would it actually mean to significantly um, demobilize this framework? Like, and the same thing you could say about mass incarceration. Like, What would it mean to have somebody that is in charge of um, carceral enterprises, but that's committed to transforming um, prison so that prison is not the primary instrument of governing the poor. Um, you know, the Republican Party has actually, in various ways, been dealing with this over the last set of decades, which is like, you know, how do you, how is it that from within the nature of these institutions, you gut them and transform them in various ways? Like this is the start of the state arguments that you see out of the right. You know, what what does it mean when you have a climate denier that's in charge of like the EPA? But the left hasn't really thought in nearly as sort of like serious a way about um, what would it mean to actually take charge of institutions? Like what would actually have to be cut? What would need to be transformed? And how would you implement a policy um, that has security as um, like 
an obvious component of, of national politics, but not as a driving feature that essentially suppresses other emancipatory ambitions. Now, I should say that one would hope if you have an authentically like left-wing internationalism, um, that the judgments about friends and enemies and the orientation of like the state abroad would shift pretty dramatically. But that doesn't necessarily mean that like, you know, an evaluation of enemies would necessarily would disappear. Um, so you might still just like socialism to... doesn't mean the end of uh, interpersonal violence in American cities, even though hopefully it would dramatically lessen it. Absolutely. I mean, what it might mean is like confrontation with a different set of actors, including many actors that the U.S. currently views as allies. Um, you know, how would you actually administer that kind of reorientation of the state? Like that requires really extensive thinking and it requires people who are in those positions who have those perspectives. It can't just be, as you mentioned, the Cory Bookers and Kristen Gillibrands of the world, which who are just like responding after the fact to shifting political tides. A final problem that you, maybe not the final problem, but the final problem we're going to talk about that you identify about for left-wing in terms of obstacles for the left is in terms of coalitional politics on the left. And you write that there is a perceived necessity these days to resolve philosophical debates prior to entering into a, a coalition to pursue shared policy goals. And you contrast this with how social movements operated in the past. Can you talk a little bit about that shift that you see there and how we might get out of the predicament we're in today? Yeah. So first, I don't really want to be Pollyannish about any past historical moment. Like, you know, the trajectory that the country was on before the Cold War um, isn't one that necessarily would have produced liberation. Like there were real profound problems of, again, like racial animus within the labor movement. There were cleavages um, within civil rights politics and feminist politics um, between what you might think of as, at least in my own mind, like more structurally emancipatory and those that, that are tied to a kind of super, superficial and inclusive liberalism. But the thing that I would say that that is noteworthy is that you know, in a moment when the left actually had real institutional strength and bases, you had organizations and groups, unions, civil rights organizations um, that actually had memberships, uh, extensive memberships, and that could claim a kind of representational authority over broad publics. And so this meant that when those groups that you know, might really disagree on pretty profound questions, let's say over the constitutive nature of white supremacy in American life, or whether or not you should emphasize class first as the, the basis for, for policymaking. When different groups representing different segments of left-wing politics were in conversation, they could be in conversation among concrete and pragmatic policy choices. And those policy choices could be reached um, because the institutions had mass, mass support. And so you could um, have a set of agreements about, you know, pursuing, let's say, an anti-lynching bill. Um, here I'm talking about elements of like the Popular Front and the Communist Party and um, NAACP without necessarily going back to the question about like proletarian revolution. Um, the problem in many ways about the turn to sort of 
it's not really a term, but the decline of institutional power and the transformation of left-wing voices into almost purely extra-institutional sources of, of dissent, public activism, and protest, is that you don't have those institutional bases that have mass representational authority that can just engage in a kind of pragmatic modus vivenda. And what that's done is it's created a tendency, and this is something you know that's not that that not that surprising, where you have activists um, and public intellectuals that are trying to hash out disagreements as a matter of first principle. And the problem, of course, is that like those questions of first principle are really difficult to find widespread common agreement on, and that disagreements then end up producing sectarianism and the breakdown of coalitional politics. And so one of the reasons why I think it's really important for um, left-wing activists to think in terms of this question of democracy and of their various movements as movements for mass democratization in a country that's fundamentally undemocratic is because then, you know, the, the focus is on, well, what are the kind of policies that can prefiguratively generate the politics that we want? In other words, what are the policies that different constituencies can find common ground on that if implemented would improve the lot of all of those constituencies. And that's a really difficult question, but it's also a profoundly different one and one that's much more amenable to agreement um, than the question about like, well, what, how should we define as a matter of a priori principle, like the nature of the society? Aziz Rana, it was a real pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting from the grave that the spectral specter haunted still, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week, but sometimes, like this week, just once. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to give us a review, the kind with five stars and friendly language, if that's what you're feeling. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners, which is a small step forward for all of humankind, of course. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution. Even a few bucks is a big help.